Word has come from the European Union leaders that many countries are looking to tighten their border policies to keep unwanted immigrants from entering various countries. Immigration has been an increasingly hot topic within the EU since 2015 when immigration levels spiked regarding the war in Syria and has recently re-entered mainstream following a shooting in Brussels, which brings us to the questions of how we got here and where we may be going next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Soraya Kavili. Hi, Soraya. Hi. And focusing on the international aspect today is Christian LaFond. Hi, Christian. Hello. Okay, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of our discussion, I want to turn to you, Soraya, and just ask about a bit of background information regarding this topic. So what have recent immigration trends into the EU looked like? Recent immigration trends in the EU has focused on refugees coming from Libya and Tanzania. And so what are the main demographics we're seeing? Um, The main demographics that we've been seeing has included Middle Eastern Africans, specifically Northern Africa and Asian. And so why are these people immigrating? Can you kind of give us just some general background on like what may cause people to have this irregular migration and things like that? Um, The root causes of migration are conflict, persecution, ethnic cleansing, extreme poverty, and natural disasters. This long-term strategy is for the asylum migration and the integration fund to receive increased budgets to support the solving of these issues in their home countries. Gotcha. And so what prompted this decision to tighten border control that we've seen come out of the EU? Recently, in the beginning of October, there was a shooting in Brussels. It was defined as a deadly Islamic attack in Belgium by a rejected asylum seeker from Tanzania who was previously in Italy and Sweden. So he failed to follow the return policies which have spurred the EU to push an overhaul as a troubled migration system. So they're working on solving the issue. And so have there been high rates of illegal immigration that we've seen come into the EU that can be another, I guess, cause of tension within this immigration topic? Yes, there has been high rates of illegal immigration. Um, Cases in the EU also shows problem with returning rejected asylum seekers and tracking people inside the EU has been very difficult within the open travel zone. So they've been wanting to fix that and that's why they've decided to make them tighter. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so I know we talked a little bit about the common demographics we see coming into the EU. So what groups will this new attitude impact the most and like how? This will mostly impact Middle Eastern refugees and and African refugees, specifically from Libya, as well as uh, bordering countries in Europe, such as like Turkey and Palestine. Gotcha. And so now that we have a little bit of background information to kind of contextualize what we're looking at, can you give us some more details on the restrictions specifically? So what have been the most prominent changes that have been made or will be made to the border control in the EU? So the most prominent changes are within Parliament and the Council. These were designed to address complexities while ensuring that the human rights of international refugees, refugee laws are respected and protected through asylum claims, which will only be for a minimum of 10 days, although they're also trying to limit the use of detention. The new rules of the internal border controls promote police co- cooperation and in border regions. And so what have been some, I guess, like the programs or anything specific we've seen come through with these changes? So I'm launching in 2024, ETS, which is the European Travel Information and Authorization System, will require travelers from visa-exempt countries to obtain an electronic travel authorization before coming to the EU. This will be valid for three years or until their passport expires. The renewal of the Integrated Border Migration Fund will also help 
It's contributed to a common harmonized visa policy and was int and introduced protective measures for vulnerable groups entering Europe. Notably, this notably refers to children who are traveling unaccompanied without their parents or another uh, guardian. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of give and take in terms of they're closing the borders, but they're also doing some things to, you know, mitigate what they're doing as well. So it's definitely an interesting viewpoint to kind of be looking at over there. So what are some of the reasons states have provided for increasing these restrictions? The reasons that states have provided for increasing restrictions is due to high illegal immigration as well as fear of attacks from foreign nations. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what we can see, like we were talking about earlier with the shooting in Brussels and things like that, I guess, are, are points of contention there. So is there contention between these restrictions and international humanitarian law for refugees? Not exactly. For example, um, in Germany, they have a lot of state, about 126,000 people are living stateless. They are unable to open a bank account, travel, vote in elections, finish their studies, or get a job due to the absence of an ID. And because they have been coming from countries that aren't considered recognized or um, exist, it's unverifiable by German authorities, which means they cannot leave Germany. And in Germany, there's not really much they can do. Gotcha. And so how are they reconciling this uh, matter of stateless people? As of right now, uh, they're trying to push a political agenda, including quick naturalizations and incentives for skilled immigrants. Also, State Free is a human rights organization that was founded by Christina Bucolo, who is a immigrant from West Africa. Um, she has started that to inform the wider public about the mass growth of statelessness in Germany and advocates for stateless people to be granted the right to have German citizenship, mostly through political action. So they're trying to get the politicians to make this part of their agenda and promote it in elections in order to pass a law. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I guess not many people know that that's such a big issue in places like Germany. I guess you don't really think about that when you think about the politics of the EU. And so a little bit more on these restrictions. Have there been physical changes made to the borders um, of different countries? Um, mostly for the borders, there's just been increased police activity. Um, there hasn't really been fences or walls. If immigrants do try to come through, there's just asylum that only lasts for about 10 days, and then they will send them back. Gotcha. So thank you for providing us a little more details on these restrictions to paint a better picture of what's actually happening over there. And I want to turn to CJ now and ask about, on a broader scale and the international scale, which states have opted for following these trends of tighter restrictions and why? Yeah, certainly, Tricia. So we have a wide variety of states that have been following this this great trend. It's it's definitely global. And you have you have state on state restrictions, you have state on migrant restrictions, you have citizen on migrant restrictions. So starting off with those state on state restrictions, you have some of the famous examples like the Korean demilitarized zone, North Korea and South Korea. A lot of people know the history, but after the Korean War, they, they separated no citizens, no migrants, no one's allowed to go through there without plenty of uh, authorization from both countries. You have lesser known examples like the Armenia-Azerbaijan border, uh, fully closed off due to the ongoing Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. You might have heard in the news the shootings exchanged, um, gunfire. It's still going on. The Armenia-Turkey border, which is because of historical hostilities. The Turkish government refuses to recognize the Armenian genocide, and therefore Armenia has their borders fully closed. And a final example, which might not be as well known, is the Colombian-Venezuelan border, which closed recently in 2015 because of a incident where Venezuelan soldiers were injured while fighting smugglers from Colombia. 
Venezuela shut down the border um, because of that. And so what have been some similar like features in all of these restrictions? So in the restrictions I named, a lot of them are similar in terms of how deeply political they are. And of course, that feeds right into the whole migrant crisis that these countries are facing. Obviously, it's highly political. And so even if these are state on state, state on migrant border closures are just as likely to happen because of these political conflicts. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can definitely see similarities between the ones you listed and some of the reasons why the EU is cracking down with what we saw the shooting in Brussels and things of that nature. And so on the flip side, what are some examples of borders staying open in Europe and throughout the world? Yes. So the perhaps most famous of uh, open border agreements is the Schengen Agreement. Throughout the entire EU, essentially, they have tried to opt for almost entirely open borders, basically taking down, in many ways, the notion of national borders between countries, free-flowing if you're a citizen in one EU nation, easily get to all the others. But then there's some other lesser-known ones throughout the world, such as the common travel area, which is just the UK and some surrounding islands like the Isle of Man in Ireland. Anyone can freely go through those. You have the Union State, which is just Belarus and Russia. They've shared really close ties. Not particularly surprising. The Treaty of Peace and Friendship uh, between India and Nepal, which has gone on for quite a long time, since 1950, almost since India came into existence. You have the CA4 Border Control Agreement, uh, which probably isn't as well known, but it's between Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. So all those Central American countries trying to uh, form, you know, a coalition trying to trying to get together and uh, help each other succeed. You have the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement, Australia and New Zealand. Not surprising. The Andean community, which is Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. Um, again, South American countries trying to make closer economic ties. Uh, you have the CARICOM single market and economy, which is a lot of the nations of the Caribbean. There's a lot of them. I'm not going to list all of them. The Gulf Cooperation Council, which is Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, UAE, and Bahrain. A lot of oil ties there. It's uh, just part of that larger like OPEC ties. Mm-hmm. And finally, the East African community, which is Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, South Sudan, Rwanda, and Burundi. And so, like I asked you previously with the other ones, what are some similar characteristics kind of tying together all these state relations? Yeah, so again, these are political, but in a different way. You know, it's it's they're trying to help each other out economically, help trying to help each other with potential migrant crises, trying to help each other with just general citizenship issues. Because of that, you know, more free-flowing trade, it just helps these countries to deal with this crisis together rather than locking down and dealing with it separately. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And all of your talk about these political factors, you know, being a main point of either contention or reconciliation between countries, I want to turn back to you, Soraya, and ask about some of the political implications that we're seeing with the EU right now and their decisions to tighten on border re- restrictions. So why did the shooting in Brussels that we've brought up a couple times spark ideas about immigration and restrictions? The shooting in Brussels sparked ideas about immigration because it increased nationalism ideals and also increased concerns about Middle Eastern immigrants, considering that people think like terrorism, unfortunately. And also in Europe, in terms of the way their political system is working right now, there's a shift closer to the right which is responsible for the lack of progressive immigration policies, and they're more interested in making a stricter policy rather than opening it or expanding through a citizenship law so more people can come. 
Mm-hmm. And, and just for our, our listeners out there, the shooting in Brussels we've been talking about was at a soccer match um, where there was a shooter who shot, I believe it was a member of the Swedish team, and was saying some nationalist, idealistic things um, regarding Islam and against um, the Swedish player. So just to kind of contextualize that and why, you know, nationalism ideals are coming up and are a point of concern for the, the government. And so another big political factor, and I'll turn to you, um, CJ, too, you can chime in on this, both of you. So how did the COVID-19 pandemic contribute to this immigration discussion? I mean, obviously, that was a very big event that impacted, you know, border closures, things of that nature. So why does that matter in this, if at all? Soraya, I didn't know if you uh, had any comments you want to make first. Um, all I'd say was that um, there's a crisis doubt. Obviously, COVID, in a way, can be considered a crisis. And because it was effective, it points to human rights risk. Um, the nationalist governments in Poland and Hungary refused to support mo- more open border policies or accept any migrants from the Middle East and Africa. And as for COVID, it's definitely easier to be, to be able to accept more people when there is a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. The, I'll just note that the interesting thing about the COVID-19 pandemic was that it gave a lot of governments the ability, the rationale to close their doors to migrants with a more morally, socially acceptable reason. And so when they closed the door, their door to migrants for the COVID-19 pandemic to try to limit flow of disease, they ended up being able to keep them shut. And this is seen in Title 42 in the United States, which... Uh, I can get into later. It's a it's a pretty long topic. Yeah, and so on that note of political factors, you know, as of late, I know obviously there's a massive conflict going on in the Middle East right now between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas. And so, will this restrictions on the borders in the EU impact the refugees coming from there? I definitely think that the restrictions will impact um, immigrants coming from there. In fact, uh, the head of the center-right European People's Party group in the European Parliament recently stated that those who are not allowed to stay in the EU must leave Europe. That must be enforced. This is a wake-up call for those who are not ready to accept the migration pact. So I think that quote is showing that like he's not backing down or willing to be open and accept it, even though uh, with the situation going on in the Middle East, it is impacting a lot of people. But because Europe, the European Union is focused more right now on uh, more centered right policies, I think they'll make it harder for um, immigration or citizenship to be available to refugees. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so I guess we fall into this question of where might the refugees be sent in that degree? And I don't know if any of us have the answer to that, but it's definitely something to, to be thinking about when we're discussing these sorts of topics. And so finally, are there any ideological intentions behind the choices to close borders outside of the you know political ones? Besides the political ones, it's just mostly about um, the increased, like super increased um, amount of illegal of illegal arrivals, and maybe like they may not have like the space to support everyone. And the aftermath of the Libyan war, for example, Tanzania has became the new departure gate to Europe. But there is an agreement between Italy and Tanzania that is not similar. So it's just like all these countries having to figure out like how to fit all these people and have more space and come. Um, accommodate everyone. Mm-hmm. And definitely there's not always infrastructure readily available to accept these migrants coming through. And so are there any, I guess, like we talked about nationalism, any sort of like racism, um, discrimination kind of ideas that are underlying in this conversation? I would say there's no legal certainty exact. Um, when I did my research, it's more so not focused on uh, racism or like religious differences. It's just that 
certain countries are having a hard time figuring out what to do and how to um, like improve their policies and like help these people but like when everything's happening so fast I guess it's like hard for them to to figure it out right away mm -hmm. and also like work and cooperate with like uh, people from different political groups to find the solution. Gotcha. And so I want to turn back to you now, CJ, and ask a little bit more about border crises that we're seeing around the world. And so how could these immigration restrictions in the EU compare to what we see in the U.S. right now? Certainly, yeah. So the U.S., like I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, Title 42, it's it was originally intended as a way to limit the flow of COVID-19 to the U.S. because a lot of migrants coming from South and Central America did end up having COVID-19. Of course, with the pandemic waning, Title 42 didn't end up waning. It was actually used more and more often. And of course, many human rights groups have pointed to this and said that clearly this is not being used for its intended purpose. And its intended purpose might have even been a little bit sketchy itself. So there, there's been a lot of pushback there. Mm -hmm. And I know, as we've seen, it's been a point of contention through multiple uh, U.S. elections as well. The um, hostility at the border towards Mexican immigrants in particular is anything of note there we should be looking at for this conversation. Yeah, Trisha, I think you really hit the nail on the head. The, the, the you know, everyone here is talk about a wall on the border between Mexico and the United States. And it's not just talk borders have been extended throughout almost every presidency. Walls have been built throughout almost every presidency. Um, and certainly there's more and more deportation or expulsion of any attempted migrants. Um, certainly a lot of internal hostility towards Mexico, but just almost all migrants in general. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so what have been other notable border crises around the world disregarding the EU or the US? Yeah, so uh, r recently we've been seeing a um, a conflict developing between Canada and India, which is interesting. It started with a with some political disagreements, some some religious issues. There was an assassination of an ambassador, and it just led to both Canada and India shutting off diplomatic relations, uh, withdrawing from embassies, and now visas uh, aren't really operating within the two countries. So that that's just their relations have gone downhill, and with that, migrants from one country to another have also gone downhill. Mm -hmm. And another one, the the war in Syria that uh, that, that started in 2015. It's with with so much of the country devastated. It's simply led to so many people having to migrate to other countries, whether that's like Jordan or Egypt, or maybe they're going north into previously mentioned Armenia, which already has its borders shut. A lot to go into Turkey, and, and Turkey's worried about getting destabilized. Mm -hmm. It's it's caused all all sorts of uh, migrant crises all throughout the Middle East, and of course even into Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean obviously this is very ongoing conflict that we see through different parts on the world. It's not really unique to just one area, whether it's the EU, U.S., Middle East. It's very holistic. Um, so what have been some of the public responses to the border crises? Yes, yeah, certainly these the, the public responses uh, they vary. Let's start with a U.S. and Mexico example. There's been a lot of critiques from Mexico. They've, they've uh, gone after various officials in the United States saying that, that what's happening isn't just. And then some U.S. citizens are saying that it, it is and that we illegal immigrants, illegal migrants do need to be deported. Some are saying that that's not true, that, that we need to help them. Uh, it's a huge contentious issue, as I'm sure anyone in the United States knows. Mm -hmm. And what about the EU? How have the 
EU citizens respond to this border crisis? Certainly, you know, at first, especially in a lot of countries like Germany, there was a, a, a sense of, of wanting to help. But with more and more migrants coming in and at least a perceived economic issues due to that, the, these countries have in general started to lower their general opinion of migrants coming in, leading to more and more shutdowns of borders, more and more laws targeting migrants coming, especially from areas like the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so I just want to wrap up our conversation now with a couple final thoughts. So I'll turn to you, Soraya, first. So with upcoming elections and political movements around Europe, do you think this could impact the campaigns of various politicians, anything of that nature? Yes, I do think with upcoming elections that um, everything going on could impact the campaigns of future politicians, especially considering that the European Union is like part of is part of the UN and the UN calls immigration as a natural human right that people should be able to do. I think the integrated migration fund also plays into that. So I think it's going to be a topic, especially considering the stateless people, refugees, immigrants, illegal, like illegal, not having like actual documentation status. I do think it's something that politicians will have to discuss when they are campaigning. Yeah. And so we'll definitely, I'm sure, start to see more of a reconciliation of these, you know, humanitarian laws with, you know, the stricter restrictions for economic reasons. Um, it'll definitely be something we need to keep an eye on in terms of continual election cycle um, over in that part of the world. And uh, to you, CJ, so what's the future outlook for the restrictions and attitudes we're seeing? Is it going to persist? Are we eventually looking at things reopening? What are your personal thoughts on it? Trisha, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Things are looking bleak. Unfortunately, I, I from my, the, the evidence I was able to collect on the issue, it seems as if things will only get worse before they get better. These it's, it's not like we're suddenly seeing nations turn in favor of helping out uh, migrants coming from these countries. I mean, just take a look at a country like Hungary or a country like Turkey. They're having entire political shifts because of these migrants. You know, Hungary, um, as many political analysts have said, is going to the far right. Um, Turkey is not just closing borders, but they're, they're trying to their best to, to deport or put, put these migrants in camps. You have nations like Greece, which are investing in their police specifically so they can deport these migrants. It's, it's looking especially bleak. The, even the United States, you know, supposed to be a, a bastion of migrants coming from across the world, has recently had very uh, unfortunate mm -hmm. decisions regarding how they're, they're handling all this coming together. So, Trisha, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it gets better. I, I am, but uh, I unfortunately don't see it getting better soon. Mm -hmm. And I, I have one more question I just thought I'd just throw at y'all if you don't mind. Um, how do you think this is going to impact possibly the, you know, giving of aid, promotion of support in terms of the conflict we're seeing in Israel and Palestine, as well as the um, Russia-Ukrainian war? I mean, obviously, if there's one thing war produces, it's refugees and migrants and things of that nature. So do you think that this might impact people's support, different countries providing aid? Either of you can um, pick up on this throwing it out there. I think it would have an impact. Hopefully more countries would be willing would be willing to uh, donate or like have funds but as you said war does produce refugees and these people do need help and they need a place to stay. Um, I know like in America Biden had an immigration policy 
and uh, some people you could like stay for three years or something like that. So I feel like it, it is possible. It just takes a lot of cooperation between people of different political parties and like sitting down and having a plan to figure out what to do next in terms of like international law and protecting people's human rights. Mm, absolutely. Any thoughts on that, CJ? Sorry, I completely agree. Um, I. It, yeah, I think it's it's not just going to have an impact. You know, this it, it could be very influential in in these future political discussions. An interesting thing, of course, we're seeing with the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, specifically with Ukrainian refugees, is that they're actually being accepted in ways that a lot of Middle Eastern refugees aren't. Uh, you take a look at Poland; they accepted plenty of Ukrainian refugees and helped them out as much as they could. But when it came time to accept Middle Eastern refugees, Unfortunately, they weren't as adept at that. So it becomes a question of why are they doing that? You know, people can throw out different ideas and, and, and potentially some of them are correct. We, we don't we don't really know. But you can cl you can clearly see that it's definitely having an impact on these nations politics. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that just goes to show how intrinsically connected ideas of like nationalism, you know, different political, I guess, views and attitudes of different countries have to do with varying areas of their policies, whether that's support, refugee, you know, approval and acceptance versus, you know, turning people away. So I just want to say this has been a really great discussion. Um, so thank you both, Sraya, Christian, for coming on and joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Trisha. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I second what Christian said. <laughs> joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Megan Pitt. Hey, Megan. Hi. So what headlines do you have for us this week? We have a South African man accused of fraud, Hurricane Otis sweeping across Mexico, Australian court rules Carnival Cruise Line negligent in COVID-19 case, gunman in Maine claims 18 lives, attacks on journalists in Lebanon seemingly intentional, Catholic Church fails to recognize LGBTQ plus issues during month-long meeting. So definitely sounds like lots of interesting stories to cover today. Let's start with the news from South Africa. Matthew Lanny, a popular TikToker, was arrested at Johannesburg Helen Joseph Hospital in South Africa. He'd created a following online, sharing medical tips and selling his own brand of pills. He claimed to have gone to medical school and stole the identity of a medical intern at another facility. The Health Professions Council of South Africa said that he was not a registered medical practitioner. Well, that's a very interesting development there. And the update on Hurricane Otis? Hurricane Otis made landfall in Acapulco, Mexico, early on Wednesday, October 25th, leaving disaster in its wake. On Thursday, October 26th, Mexican authorities confirmed at least 27 were dead and four were missing. Thousands of houses were without electricity. President Obrador reported that there were no power line poles still standing in the impact zone. Residents have grown frustrated with Mexican authorities claiming that they have not done enough to reduce the storm's destruction. Our hearts go out to everyone impacted by the natural disaster. And tell me more about the cruise line in Australia. The Ruby Princess, a carnival ship, is the source of a negligence ruling against the famed cruise line. The ocean liner departed from Sydney, Australia on March 8, 2020, with 2,671 passengers on board. After 11 days on board, 663 passengers contracted COVID-19 and 28 died. Passenger Susan Karpik suffered mild symptoms, but her husband was hospitalized for several months, leading to Karpik's anger and eventual case. Federal Court Justice Angus Stewart ruled Carnival negligent, which Karpik deemed a win. It's definitely something to be keeping an eye on, and could you inform us about what happened in Maine? Robert R. Card, a sergeant first class in the Army Reserve, is the primary suspect in a mass shooting that took place in Lewiston, Maine on October 25th. Card claimed the lives of seven at a bowling alley before killing eight more at a nearby bar. 
Colonel William G. Ross reported that three more lives were lost at local hospitals. Governor Janet Mills said at least 13 were injured in the attacks. The state of Maine has lenient gun laws, lacking a red flag law to identify those at extreme risk for gun violence. A devastating event for certain. And could you tell us more about the Lebanese journalists? Earlier this month, strikes hit a group of journalists in Lebanon while they were covering tension on the southern Lebanese border. Journalists from Reuters, AFP, and Al Jazeera were killed. All killed were wearing vests and helmets clearly marked press. Reporters Without Borders, a watchdog group that advocates for press freedom, has announced that while they cannot prove that the journalists were targeted because of their work, it was obvious that those killed worked for the media and their deaths were certainly not an accident. The Lebanese government has placed the blame on Israel. The nation has responded with promises of investigation, stating that while they would not intentionally kill a journalist, they are at war and death is inevitable in battle. A very important incident to be aware of indeed. And our last story? On Saturday, October 28th, a month-long meeting assembled by Pope Francis about the future of the Roman Catholic Church ended. Prior to the meeting, social issues such as LGBTQ rights and the possibility of married men becoming priests were to be discussed. However, the meeting failed to touch on these topics, much to the dismay of progressives. However, a document from the meeting stated that women must have a larger role in Catholic society, wherein they bear more responsibilities and have a stronger voice. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Megan. That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasha Kastraba and Juliana Mori, technical producers Ashley Skladani and Amelia Vensachinsky, and of course your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thanks, y'all.